Ballad Friday, baby, you are all that I want when you are lying there in my arms. Composer Jim Valance said he co-wrote the song with lyricist Brian Adams for a dreadful film called A Night in Heaven about a male stripper, which was released in 1983. The film may have been third rate, he said, but the song was a monster hit and wasn't it just. Critic Stuart Mason called the song the power ballad that transcends the inherent cheesiness of the style to become a genuinely effective single. Now, just some traffic updates uh, for you. Uh, State High 1 Mount Victoria Tunnel is now fully open following uh, a prior crash. And there was a truck breakdown uh, blocking the right northbound lane on State Highway 1 just off the Papakura on-ramp. Uh, and that truck has now been fixed and is now uh, clear of lanes. <clears throat> and feedback regarding words uh, lost in translation. Val says, we were farewelling a student from Turkey at the airport when he asked us, we always wanted to know, what does good onions mean? Because you say it often. We concluded it was saying good on you. Each time he told us of his achievements. And a bit of response regarding uh, the situation, this uh, baby having surgery, Wallace regarding this baby. The parents want the best for their child. What you should be asking is why is it the law has been quietly changed to prohibit private donations of blood? Why is this not being asked? That is being asked time and time and time again on this station, on all shows. It's been the issue. Uh, And again, I'll tell you, directed donation offers no advantage to the recipient and has been shown in some studies to increase transfusion risk. That is what the uh, Chief Medical Officer at the New Zealand Blood Surface, Dr. Sarah Morley, says it can indeed increase transfusion risk and it also introduces unnecessary complexity into well-established blood collection and processing systems that increase the risk of errors and inadequate supply for the patient. So there are clear reasons why this does not happen and that has been canvassed often on RNZ across all shows. It is 24 to 5, the panel, RNZ National. Sue Kesley and Peter Dunn with me this afternoon. Now, just under half households will have paper forms hand-delivered or posted to them for the next census on March the 7th. And a code will be sent to everyone, and that will allow anyone to instead complete the census online. So look out for that letter in the mailbox. The March census is likely to be the most talked about as a result of the inclusion of certain questions. More on that now with us is Simon Mason, the Deputy Government Statistician and Deputy Chief Executive of Census and Collections Operations, Stats NZ. Simon, kia ora. Kia ora. Thanks, Wallace. uh, Pleasure, um, Simon. Online or offline? What do people prefer these days, Simon? Well, it's it's very mixed. So I would say probably uh, over seventy percent will prefer online um, versus those that will prefer, uh, prefer paper. Um, and we saw that inter- internationally as well. And and to be quite honest, people get a better experience with online uh, right. if they if they choose to fill it in online. Now, Simon, uh, this will be this census will be significant. Uh, it will be when it arrives. It'll be much talked about. Um, the inclusion of these new questions. Uh, what are those questions? Tell us a bit more about this. So we're going to have uh, new questions about uh, gender and sexual identity and variation of sex characteristics. 
this is the first time that we've included them in the census and this um, will help uh, raise the visibility of our rainbow community and this is the first time that they'll appear through uh, this level of data across the entire census. So it's a, it's a really good outcome for that community yeah. and um, for decision makers to start seeing them in, in the data. So those uh, who are deeply involved in that sector, they're, they're, they're applauding this, huh? Yeah, they're, they're well on board. We've been working uh, very closely with, uh, with a number of groups, including Inside Out and, and Zeal here in Wellington. Um, we've got a, a few stories on our website on census.govd.nz, um, which people can see as well. So it's a, it's a really good story, yeah. Although I'm thinking, I'm just, you know, I was just thinking about how, you know, because I do enjoy filling up a census when it comes around, but when it gets to these questions, there might be some, Simon, who would really push back on those questions. They're quite private. Are you anticipating that also? So privacy is a, um, a really big concern for us in, in general anyway. So we never share information about individuals or any, or any organisations or with any organisations. Um, we have safeguards in place to protect people's private information. And in fact, when you press submit or you drop it into the email, nobody will have access to the individual form. It'll be uh, taken in through our system. So strongly encourage people to... Um, uh, to fill in the, the forms and, and those questions, um, and uh, we'll get better data as a result. Yeah, all right, so Kirtley. Well, um, yes, Kiora, I can see the reason why you're going to be asking these questions, but I recall that the reason that was given uh, in previous years for not including sexual identity information was because the responses were often not reliable because people would sometimes fill them out in stupid ways. So how do we ensure that it, would, it will be reliable this time around? So we have uh, a few checks and balances within our system. So, I mean, if people answer the uh, multiple um, multiple questions at the same time, um, those will spit out as an error and um, we'll have humans actually looking over some of those things. And the same is true for other questions that are asked. So there's quite a lot of QA that goes into this. Um, but at the end of the day, if um, if people want to be uh, silly with the forms, um, you know, that, that uh, comes par and part with uh, the... Um, the census anyway. All right, and by the way, before we get to Peter, there there will be more uh, information around iwi affiliation and on disability too, so you'll be gathering more real granular data uh, about um, that as well. That's right, and the other thing I'd like to mention is, is sign language, so we'll, oh, yes. we'll have... Um, the forms translated into sign. So we've been working with the deaf community, uh, deaf Aotearoa, uh, and University of Wellington to make this happen. So this is another uh, an exciting uh, part of census. Um, so that'll be a, a great way for some people in our deaf community to um, re- have some of the barriers that were removed in the, uh, or they may have experienced in the past. Peter Dunn. I don't have any problem with the the inclusion of these questions. I'm assuming that if you don't answer them or choose not to, that doesn't invalidate the remainder of your responses to the census. But I was a wee bit concerned about your comment that um, this has really given sort of added, added prominence to this particular sector. I thought the census was about gathering data about who New Zealanders are at any given point in time, and it's not about giving prominence to this sector or that. And I just wonder if if that runs the risk of skewing some of the responses. Look, I don't think so, um, Peter. It's it's more of a case of 
uh, this particular part of the community haven't had a voice in census in the past, mm. and now they will have one going forward. So um, I, I think that's that, that's a good thing, right? I, I don't I don't disagree, but I, I don't think we're we're out there to promote any particular interests. Are we? We're out there to get the information, and I'm assuming that the inclusion of these questions this time they will be repeated in the next census? Correct, yes. Yeah, okay. yeah I mean, it's something that's happening now, Peter, mm. that hasn't happened before, which no, is why no, we talk I'm about it, right? I'm not disagreeing <laughs> with that, but I just yeah. don't, I don't think it's... All I'm saying is I think the census is a, a, an information-gathering exercise. Sure. It's not an interest promotion exercise. Well, look, uh, just finally, Simon, uh, another aspect is the census is expected to cost double that of the last census in 2018, you know, it has a budget of $251 million, pretty significant there. Why that big increase? So the big increase is really a recognition that in 2018 um, things didn't go as well as, as anybody had hoped and mm. this is an investment in uh, ensuring that that uh, doesn't happen again. So the money is really going towards um, more paper and more people. So as you mentioned in your, in your opening piece, we'll have um, 44% more paper and we'll have roughly 3,500 uh, collectors versus um, almost half that last time. We've also been able to um, put supporting languages for some of the supporting materials uh, or translates uh, supporting materials to 28 languages this time and the sign, New Zealand Sign Language videos that uh, we mentioned last time. So this will make it the most inclusive uh, census ever. Right. Can I just be clear that the people who filled in the census online last time will still have the opportunity to do so again this time? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, um, and even if you just, uh, if you are one of the recipients that will get a code, you can still order the paper if that's how you'd prefer to fill in the census. Good on you, Simon. Kia ora. Thank you for your time this afternoon. Uh, that is Simon Mason, the uh, Deputy Chief Executive of Census and Collection Operations, Stats NZ. Um, needless to say, Sue, um, an extremely important exercise, isn't it? Because uh, we get much of our information, also a lot of decisions based on this collection of data. Absolutely. And last time there was only an 85% response. So I'm glad that they are pouring more resources and people into it uh, because, as you say, it's the basis for all sorts of decisions from electoral boundaries onwards, you know. Got to sneak in some feedback, too, regarding uh, Harry and Megan Netflix trailer. Of course, it's just, um, well, is it fair to say it's taken the world by storm? It's certainly developing huge interest across uh, all media platforms. Whether you watch it or not, I, personally, I saw the trailer, can't be bothered myself. Um, but uh, someone says, I'm thinking I learned something from watching the Netflix last night. I learned that I shouldn't judge when I haven't walked in Megan's shoes. I don't think oh, I could God. live with that amount of stalking. And they seem really genuine to me. Um, people are also pointing out Megan's mother uh, was the absolute, um, absolutely poised and respectful and respected. And a lot of people People are highly impressed with her, although um, not everyone's a fan. It rips my nighty, Megan and Harry. It's absolutely appalling behaviour. The loyal fa- royal family welcomed her into their lives. King giving away her at the wedding. Doesn't, does, doesn't it say everything? Not one friend did Meg have at the celebration. Only her mum. They deserve everything they have fished out. Harry made a huge mistake. He's got no purpose now. Very interesting. Thank you. Uh, 15 to 5, the panel. Now, just under... No, we talked about that, didn't we? I want to go to this. This is fascinating. Soon it'll be illegal 
to have sex outside of marriage in Indonesia. Parliament has passed it, still has to be ratified by the president, but it's expected to come into force within the next three years. New Zealanders visiting Indonesia will be affected. Bali is a hugely popular holiday destination. 83,000 Kiwis a year before COVID. To tell us about the impact it could have, we have Victoria University of Wellington Associate Tourism Professor Ian Yeoman with us. Ian, kia ora, good to have you here. Kia ora and good afternoon. Hello. Ian, can you have tourism without sex? It would be quite difficult. Um, it would be quite difficult, um, especially with Bali, uh, which is a hedonistic de- destination. Is it? Fundamentally pro- yes, it is. It, it, if, you, if you look at the imagery that the Bali uses, it's, it, it's, it, it's a backpacker youth destination. It promotes itself heavily as a wedding destination, uh, re- resorts. So it, it's about hedonistic enjoyment type, types of act, activities. So, that, so, for example, some big segments there, the, the wedding industry, the resort sector, uh, and the youth market. And, and what connects all three sectors is, is love, marriage, and, and sex. So what you have with this, with this, um, with this legislation is uh, it's an issue of perception because when we make a decision to, to visit a destination, we, we have a good feeling. Do we want to go there on holiday? What's it like? Uh, and the issue of uh, a, a sexless destination will have a huge impact. Um, on people's decision making on whether to go to the to go to the destination. Interesting, Ian. Okay, uh, so the issue of a a sexless destination, a sexless destination, will have a big impact. I mean, Bali. I've never been there, so so I wouldn't have a clue uh, of the ins and outs of Bali. But what's your take on this? Well, I mean, I, first of all, I think it's completely absurd. I mean, polyg- polygamy is legal in Indonesia. So a man can legally have four wives, but you can sort of go to jail for having premarital or extramarital sex. I mean, it, it does seem to me um, completely absurd. And certain, I mean, I'm sure it will affect uh, tourism because mm. who would want to end up in an Indonesian jail? But, Absolutely. you know, we've focused on the sex thing, but there's other parts of this new code, criminal code they've brought in, um, you can also, it's a, they've banned spreading views that are counter to the state ideology or insulting the state. So if you were to argue against um, this particular ban, you could end up in jail. So I think it's, you know, what you'd call an own goal. But I'm wondering whether, um, uh, given the, the obvious impact it's going to have on tourism, that they might... What do you think they might, Ian, quietly shelve it before the three years is up when they, uh, when it finally yeah. comes into into force? Ian, well, I think the key issue is that you know, um, Indonesia is, is the largest Islamic country within Asia fundamentally, and it's a decision that this is the pathway that they want to go. I think the key issue is probably around implementation and what they do, because there's not there's no tourist police. Which are going to be out there um, looking for uh, looking for? Um, they won't import the Iranian morality <laughs> police, right? Yeah, they're, they're just not out there. And basically, the way the way the legislation framework is set up is basically it's got to be reported by a, a local, a family member, etc., etc., etc. 
Oh, okay. Um, so it's, it's a matter it's a matter of implementation. All right. You have to, but when you make that decision to go to a destination, it's how you feel about about the place. As you say, um, perceptual. Let me put it out there, and let me put it out to our listeners. I'd love to hear from you. if you are thinking of having a holiday in 2023 and you're thinking of going to Bali, Indonesia, would a sexless destination put you off? Text me, 2101. Peter Dunn. Well, I'm just reflecting that it's a few years ago now that under this president in Indonesia we went through a spate of people being executed for drug crimes. And after international revulsion, he pulled back I'm just wondering whether this is going to have in, a, in, in, its, in the same way, the same sort of um, situation where you put out there a really extreme position, you attempt to enforce it, and then with the outcry from the rest of the world, you pull back. You're talking about, by the way, you're talking about Duterte, right? He's the former president, isn't he? No, I'm talking about Widonio. Duterte was in the Philippines. Widonio, when he came to Of course, to power. I'm sorry. Yeah, my mistake. So I just wonder whether we're seeing a, a sort of a bit of game playing here to shore up the votes of the the Islamic majority at home, uh, but in fact it will prove uh, ultimately something that uh, is ridiculed by the rest of the world, criticised strongly, and needs to be backpedalled on. Ian? Uh, you know, that, that could happen. Um, there's been a number of... Uh, because it's about economic pressure, and there's going to be a lot of pressure from mm. um, the Balinese hotel and accommodation sector, uh, the tourist sector, to, to roll back on this legislation or have some sort of Exclusion or ha- have some sort of adaption um, in in order to do in order to do that. So that it, 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 it's an unknown one what will happen in the ne- next twelve months regarding the legislation. I mean, the enforceability uh, is the, the ultimate issue, issue, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But you know, yeah, all political issue. parties voted for yeah, this. I yeah. noticed. It. But also, can people run around protesting because that there's a ban now on spreading views? Countering yeah. to the state ideology, yeah. so um, well, that becomes a problem also. Ian, quite a bit of response well, from well, this. You, 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 said, you said that, but actually, there are there are similar um, there are similar types of legislation frameworks or, or, or law, for example, in Thailand. Yes, I know, and, and we've had the old New Zealand locked up there. Hmm. Ian, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, gathered quite a response on this. So, Kira, uh, nice to have you uh, here. Ian Yeoman there who is an Associate Tourism Professor at Victoria University. By the way, uh, although Indonesia is Islamic, uh, it seems the island of Bali is Hindu. Um, So Mm. someone says, I can't go there with my girlfriend. Is that right? Um, Gosh, Mm. uh, a lot of response uh, here. Um, The law in Bali makes homosexual couples illegal also. Yeah. Mm. Uh, So by visiting with your tourist dollar, you are supporting their... Views, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, all right, someone says... like Qatar. R- yes. Uh, does the new law mean that unmarried couples would break the law by mm-hmm. visiting yes. Bali? Yes, it yeah. does. Mm. Yeah, well, <laughs> we might have to come back to it. There's a lot of questions. Maybe we have a, we have, we're going to have a uh, Q&A on this. Anyway, finally, uh, on the program, you say on the panel, Anna Dean, a long-time Wellington resident, a long-time arts practitioner in the capital... Said yesterday, Auckland has kind of stolen the arts crown from the capital increasingly over the last few years, and Wellington has lost its spark in a lot of ways. David Farrow said, I dispute that. With us is Sophie Durham, the Wellington City Council Arts Strategy Lead, who 
got in touch and has things to say. Kia ora, Sophie. <laughs> Kia ora, Koto. <laughs> okay, all right. I don't know whether it was tongue-in-cheek or not, but she certainly felt it. What well, state your case? Well, <laughs> I mean, look, Wellington's loss, having Anadine out of the capital, it's, it's true. It's true. Her, her going to Golden Bay is, is definitely their gain. So we miss her desperately, but actually um, there has been a bit going on since she's gone, and we've got, right. um, I feel like she, she hasn't kind of, she's, just wants to pretend that she doesn't want to get FOMO, right? We've we're actually got a lot going on. When we <laughs> three years ago. <laughs> okay, so but, she's got FOMO. All right, uh, Sophie, stay there. We've got we've got a Wellington panel this afternoon. Round the panel, starting with you, Peter. Well, I've never thought of Auckland as being a cultural uh, uh, haven, and I don't oh, wow. think it is Thanks, now. Peter. Uh, I think it's oh, too gosh. diverse and, and, and spread for that. Uh, Wellington, I think, has had a, a good cultural tradition. I think it's lagging at the moment, but it's not because it's being um, chased down by Auckland. I think there are a whole lot of other factors. COVID's one of them. I think the fact that we've become a bit preoccupied with some myopic issues in the city and have lost our, our way as well as another. But uh, no, n- not not secondary to Auckland. Okay, this. too diverse to be cultural. Didn't quite understand you well, there, I mean Peter. In done. terms of too geographically diverse, I wasn't ah, talking about Sue. Well. Um, I can only charitably think that um, you know Anna's been away a bit long because <laughs> I, I think our whole the, the creative sector is flourishing. Sure, okay. it took a hit during uh, COVID as it did everywhere. But look, well, we've got vibrant theatre, we've got art galleries, we've got wow, we've got an incredible music scene. I mean, the only problem I think is that you know, I mean you could be out every single night in Wellington. You know, there's just so much going on. So I, I, th- I think. You know, I don't like this sort of is Auckland better than Wellington, but I can tell you, Wellington is the creative cult, uh, capital okay. of, uh, of New Zealand. So, in the interest of balance, then, because Anna Dean, a uh, you know, fairly influential person in the Wellington scene, uh, came out and said, Lost the spark. What have you been working on, Sophie? Well, it's actually about three years ago, um, just prior to COVID really starting, but of course, everyone has been hit, and I can totally agree, Peter. That it's kind of made people you know, burnt a bit, but in fact, what happened was that the council put together a strategy to to try and address the kind of restoration of the of the crown, as it were, and it was called Ahutini, and it was in consultation with the sector. Really right. strong, really strong focus on restoring the venue, such as as you said, the St James, and also getting the Hannah Playhouse back back going, so that practitioners can use it as a development space. We've also seen a kind of rise in, in uh, community venues that have started up with creating music in their own spaces. There's one called Antisocial which has started, Bogomore Hall, um, the Secret Secret Club in Bond Street. There's places that are kind of cropping up because people love being here. But but we've also seen an investment from the council, particularly in venues, but also in the, uh, the Māori um, mana whenua scene. Mm. And we've got uh, amazing festival that happened over Te Wiki o Te Reo called Te Hui Ahure, and the most incredible waterfront um, festival of, of and, and the Pipite Marae celebrating mana whenua artists, which I think was pretty second to none. All right, so things are still going on. So Anna Dean is just uh, uh, experiencing fun with that. Uh, can I put a bit of a plug? Actually, Wellington does have. I'm a. I'm a I, I love New Zealand art and the independent galleries in Fantastic. Wellington are really. You've got arguably New Zealand's best with Peter McLeavy Gallery or McLeavy Gallery rather. Page Galleries, Robert Hill Gallery. There are so many more. It's a bit of a winner in terms of um, that particular scene there. So, and we've all... even got the old Town Hall eventually being restored. Yeah. Is it next year? It's going to open again. 
So yeah, I think... Well, probably, no, probably two or three years oh, away from yeah. that one. Another two years. It's pushing oh, further out. That's the problem. Yeah. yeah. I suppose one of the things is that we don't really see that the competition with Auckland. We ah. think Wellington's a bit of a, you know, a, hot, a hotbed of development. And then we love touring. I mean, we love the scale and size of Auckland. Oh, yeah. the cat amongst the pigeons. Come on, folks. <laughs> Nelson's the art centre of New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Kira, Sophie, Sue, Kishley, Peter Dunn, you're both wonderful. Thanks for being with me. I'm Wallace Chapman. See you Monday, 3.45. Checkpoint next.